Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Our minds are amazing at many, many, many things. Our minds are capable of remembering the birthday of the ones we love, calculate the budget for our next trip, think about our next writing project, come up with questions for a podcast episode, and our minds are also capable of ruminating, dwelling, coming up with strange thoughts, announcing all types of bad scenarios and many more. Why are our minds both awesome and so challenging to deal with at times? And how can we deal with them in a skillful way? In today's episode, I interview Josh Malina, host of the podcast Anxiety Book Club. Josh and I chat about the different ways in which our minds influence our mental health and different approaches to deal with them. We discuss how mindfulness and meditation can help us deal with our busy and dynamic minds. Josh very kindly shared with us different times in which anxiety, intrusive thoughts, and worried thoughts took him away from being present and pushed him to play it safe. He also shares the skills that he has found helpful to manage all those annoying thoughts. We discuss in particular three approaches, exposure exercises, acceptance and commitment skills, and internal family systems. You will hear from Josh how regular mindfulness practice has helped him to transform his relationship with his thoughts, to become an observer of his thoughts, and to be non-judgmental of his worries, fears, and anxieties. Now, on another note, I am super thrilled to announce a two-day pre-launch of my upcoming online class, Act Beyond Perfectionism. It has over 10 hours of high-quality video, 18 experiential exercises, and bonus materials for you. If you are a high achiever, If you are a person that deeply cares about the projects you participate in and you get stuck in working harder and harder and feeling that it's never good enough, you may want to take a look at Act Beyond Perfectionism. In this class, I am going to teach you acceptance and commitment skills to harness the power of perfectionistic actions without losing yourself. I have poured my heart into making Act Beyond Perfectionism a helpful online class so people like you 
prone to perfectionistic, high-achieving, and striving behaviors can learn to build rich and fulfilling lives. If you go to the website, www.thisisdrz.com, you can select the option online classes and then register for Act Beyond Perfectionist. As a listener of the Plain It Safe podcast, I want to offer you a 50% early bird discount for Act Beyond Perfectionist. Every month, the price will increase until the release of the course in a few months. So don't miss out and take advantage of this 50% discount. Before we jump into the conversation with Josh, I want to leave you with this quote. You can spend minutes, hours, days, weeks, or even months over-analyzing a situation, trying to put the pieces together, justifying what could have or would have happened. Or you can just leave the pieces on the floor and move on. This is a quote by Tupac Shakur. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Josh, and I wish you a lovely week. Bye-bye. See you next week. Do you feel comfortable sharing your story with anxiety? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, Let's see. So, yeah, I'm 34 now, and I've had anxiety for quite a long time. I think... I think it got actually bad in college, probably, mm-hmm. you know, you move away from home, things are very different. And I had a lot of anxiety around choosing what major, what college major to select. And it was really the beginning of a problem that I didn't really understand. And I understand it a lot better now, but anxiety around decisions, especially like big ones, weight, weight, uh-huh. ones has been like my Achilles heel. It's been the hardest thing for me in my life, I think. I know a little bit more about what's going on now, and I'm still sort of healing, doing different kinds of practices. But at the time when I was in college, it felt like if I chose the wrong college major, it was going to be the end of the world. You know, it felt absolutely like, you know, a catastrophe, like, like, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to put the feelings into words, but I experienced so much anxiety around making the right choice that, uh, you know, I wasn't sleeping and asking so many different people, what should I do? And since that time, and through the through my flailing and trying to find sort of solutions to my problems, I've definitely, I've done a lot of talk therapy and I've done (laughs) other kinds of therapy. You know, it sort of prompted me to start the podcast. I started reading about anxiety, which I never was, I never felt brave enough to read books about anxiety because I thought they would make me more anxious. Ah. Yeah. So, (laughs) I finally I finally read a book called DARE. What does the DARE stand for? Like it's an acronym, diffuse, accept, run towards, engage, something like that. And the guy that wrote it, he's a British guy. He basically like synthesized a lot of like CBT, I think, 
Mm -hmm. maybe some mindfulness stuff into this acronym. And it really changed the way that I thought about my thoughts. And yeah, so that was the beginning of the podcast. And, you know, I should also say that, you know, besides just having general anxiety, OCD is also something I deal with. And uh, yeah, learning, you know, rituals, yes, rituals and trying to live with like a really noisy mind, trying to find myself, you know, in the midst of like a storm, you know, like a a storm of thoughts has always been a challenge. Um, I would just call lots of people, change my mind a lot, and then eventually... Mm -hmm. I guess choose something. Screaming the whole way. I knew that I was having a problem that other people didn't seem to be having. So I knew something was wrong. And Mm -hmm. besides the college major stuff, a lot like more things started coming up that would sort of um, cause me the same problem. So eventually, I think I started to realize you know, this is a, this is a, an actual problem. Um, and I don't know, I guess I would go and do like talk therapy and talk to the therapist about what was going on, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, I don't think I really understood it. And my understanding continues to evolve to this day, you know, Was there any skill from acceptance and commitment therapy that was helpful to you? That allowed you to, to have the background noise and still do the stuff that you care about? Yeah. I think when I first heard about values, I was at, I think I was at the OCD conference in Austin, Texas a few years ago. And I heard about acceptance commitment therapy. And I thought, wow, this is cool because I was really into mindfulness at the time. And I thought, oh, this will, this is what I'm going to do. And I thought about the values. I think the values wound up being a bit of a red herring for me. Because mm-hmm. when I saw values, the sticky part of my mind that doesn't like to make decisions thought, oh, this will be great. I'll just use values and then I'll be able to make the perfect choice. You know, uh-huh. my anxiety sort of cleverly like co-opted this idea of values as like a new way to be certain. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned mindfulness. What was helpful for you about mindfulness? Yeah, so I can think, let me be a little more specific here. So of all yeah. the tools I've learned, I still meditate every day. So I learned about mindfulness. I took mindfulness-based stress reduction at University of Miami in like 2017. And since then, I've been meditating every day. So that's one thing that I've always stuck with me. When I do it, it's like I'm taking my medicine. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't like it. But I always think it's a good idea. And I will also say that exposure therapy was also useful to me for OCD stuff. So I used to have a lot of rituals around sleeping. And in order to make myself like a more robust sleeper and less sort of less vulnerable to some of the OCD rituals I used to do, I set up this whole like program for myself in my apartment around sleeping time. So I I wrote it out in a journal. So like one night I had to sleep with like the TV on. 
One night I had to sleep with the radio on. One night I had to sleep with the radio on at like volume five and then like volume seven and volume 10. One night I had to sleep with uh, doors unlocked to my apartment. Or one night I had to sleep outside. I did all of these things that I knew was going to piss off my OCD or anxiety just so that I could learn the lesson that, you know, I can still sleep even if things are imperfect. And also that I'm, you know, I'm maybe I'm stronger than I thought I was. So that was a period of my life where I was sort of trying to like beat my anxiety. And I think that stuff is necessary when it's really interfering with your life. Um, Mm -hmm. these days I'm less interested in beating it and more interested in like healing it and being with it. If I'm sitting next to you in the morning, when you're beginning your day, what will I see you doing? Well, first I'll turn to you and say, how'd you get in here? (laughs) (laughs) That's what, what are you doing here? (laughs) So I keep three pillows on the floor in front of my bed. And after I wake up and I drink some water, I sit down and I meditate for about 20 minutes. And it's either silent or it's with a guided meditation. I really like Sam Harris's Waking Up app. Every day there's a new 20-minute meditation on there. Um, It really depends on the season of my life. So, you know, here in D.C., my life has been kind of more stressful than it was back in Florida. So I don't meditate as long. I used to meditate, you know, for maybe 30 or more minutes a day, but now it's more like 20, but it is something I do daily. I see. Um, Now, do you focus on something in particular? Do you focus on your breathing or do you let your mind wander? Um, It really depends. Some, I've gone through months where I like hate the breath and I don't want to think about the breath at all. Now, more recently, I'm kind of back into breath. I'm enjoying the breath. So I've been focusing more on that. I also do like to let my mind wander, especially I would say at night after I've had a a long day and my mind is full of thoughts and I know I won't be able to like meditate or focus on really any anchor. I just like, I like to let my mind wander because I think if I let it wander now, it'll wander less when I try to get in bed and go to sleep. I see. I started with mindfulness a couple of years ago. And initially, most of my practices were focusing on my breathing or a particular object and bringing myself back to my breathing. But then last year, I got introduced to transcendental meditation. And the idea is that you don't focus on anything, just let the mind wander. Um, And it was a very different experience, I have to say. It feels less forceful to me and it's much more gentle when I let my mind wander. Yeah, for sure. It feels less effortful to do a sort of choiceless awareness meditation. Um, It's true. I think one thing that I'm doing now, and this is more in the realm of like maybe IFS, is when I sit down to meditate and I notice that there's some pain some physical or mental pain, I try to find out what's going on. And by find out what's going on, sometimes I literally will ask myself, not out loud, but in my mind, I'll say, what's going on? Like, what's, I'll say, what's wrong? What is wrong? And sometimes I get an answer, you know? 
And I know I notice that if I do that and I get an answer, sometimes I take a big breath because I've released a little bit of stress because whoever's like upset in my system now knows that I'm paying a little bit of attention to it. I see. And when you do that, Josh, what do you notice? What do you notice afterwards? Sometimes I notice that I feel lighter. I feel less stressed. Maybe the pain in my chest maybe has gotten smaller or maybe it's moved. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like I'm doing something good for myself when that happens. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into internal family systems? Uh, a friend of mine who knew I was into mindfulness recommended it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started reading the book by Dick Schwartz, No Bad Parts. And I I interviewed Dick Schwartz on the podcast and I got really interested in what he had to say. And uh, then I found a therapist here in DC who specializes in IFS and, and, and I think she's even trained with Dick Schwartz. And um, now, uh, yeah, I've been doing in-person IFS therapy with her for probably almost a year, I would say. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been a it's been a very interesting therapeutic experience. Um, mm -hmm. My other therapists have definitely helped me, especially some of my OCD therapists, um, mm -hmm. who understand the way my mind works very well. Mm -hmm. But the IFS stuff is it's it's a it's like a completely different ball game. I mean, it's it's a different thing. <laughs> well, do you mind sharing that a little bit? What's different about it? I understand we start identifying different parts of ourselves and which part of us we want to pay attention to or what's going on with a particular part. And it's quite different, quite different doing exposures and facing your fears, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of these therapies are different, right? So you have, you have exposure therapy where, you know, you actually have to take some kind of action, you know, to resist compulsing in some way. And then IFS is very different. They're all different from each other. You know, here's the difference. Let's say we're doing talk therapy and I come into therapy and say, oh, my God, I had such a bad day. My boss yelled at me and my sister wasn't nice to me and the dog ate my homework and I, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, an IFS session doesn't sound like that at all. In an mm -hmm. IFS session, you're sitting there with the therapist, your eyes are closed and you're noticing what's coming up for you. And probably the same stories are coming up like, oh, uh, my boss yelled at me. But in this case, you are naming the experience and finding out how you feel towards the parts of you that are upset about this. That experience is much more like a it's much more like a guided meditation where you're really getting to know your internal like system, your internal constellation. And I think one reason why that can be more productive is if you are very, as they say, blended in IFS, like you're very blended with some part of you, when you go to talk therapy, you might not be talking to the therapist the whole time because a part of you that you mistakenly believe is you is talking to the therapist the whole time, you know? So, you know, sometimes it can be hard to make progress if you don't know the difference between yourself and the parts. And, the, you know, the whole practice in some ways of IFS is like continuing to peel this onion that is you, finding mm -hmm. out 
you know, who's working for you, who's like, you know, un, unskillfully, you know, trying to help you, figuring out where you end and where they begin and seeing what you can do to show them your leadership, your compassion, your kindness, so that they can start working together for you as part of a team. Yeah. So it's hard to describe, but it's pretty different. It's very different and quite fascinating. Now, within acceptance and community therapy, we talk about perspective taking. And there is self in context. I have my capacity to notice all these internal experiences without being defined by them. You are talking about this um, process of identifying different parts within you and learning that you are not them. For people listening to us, that may sound very funky, funky, right? How did you navigate that? How can you say that part of me that gets scared or that is concerned about getting things wrong is not me? How do you separate yourself from those parts? Well, so let's say you're having a therapy session Mm -hmm. and let's say you're dealing with some problem like, oh, let's take the college major, for Mm -hmm. example, and you, you close your eyes and you notice that there's some part of you that's upset and you ask the part like what it's upset about and it says like if we choose the wrong college major then you know we will get a job we don't like and we'll have an unhappy life or something like that Mm -hmm. in the moment that happens you might notice that whoever was saying that wasn't you which is to say you didn't come up with that thought that thought sort of just arrived and appeared. Mm-hmm. It probably helps because I have a background in mindfulness. I don't, I mean, I don't believe in free will. I don't believe I make any of my thoughts. Like I was already well prepared, I think, to be open to the idea that there's a lot of weird stuff happening in our heads and most of it isn't me, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think if you come to IFS, I mean, I don't have, I can't do a counterfactual because I've only been one person, but if you have a very rigid idea of who you are and that you make all your thoughts and all that stuff, the learning curve is going to be even higher, I think. But I was very skeptical about IFS. I mean, it sounds insane. All these little people live in your head. What? Who are they? (laughs) Um, But how did you navigate to that? Well, so I knew it was right or true, or it was working for me. I went on a meditation retreat and it was part of our silent walking meditation. And I recognized that something hard had come up in my mind and there was, I was having a bad feeling, maybe some anxiety or frustration or something. And I went to go sit down at lunch, which is also silent. And I closed my eyes and I could see like, see that there were two different things, two different perspectives. I think there was a part of me that was very upset about something. And there was another part of me that wanted to offer compassion. And then there was a third part of me that thought I didn't deserve compassion. And I was pathetic for always needing compassion. And I sort of closed my eyes and I witnessed this whole conversation taking place in my head And I was actually able to facilitate a kind of compromise between these parts to listen to each other more and be a little more gracious sort of in how they interact. And then I didn't feel bad anymore. Like 
the way that I felt feeling anxious or frustrated or whatever, it was gone because it was resolved. And that's when I knew, okay, like some of this stuff has some merit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very interesting. It's very interesting how, um, how we have to experience something to see if it works for us versus trying to understand it with our head, right? Talking about different parts may sound so abstract until you have that experience. Um, as you were talking about internal family systems, you also mentioned that there is this process when you know where a part of you begins and where it ends. And there is you, right? There is this self that is holding all these parts. Can you say a little more about that? That you don't confuse them with your identity. That today you can say, that's not me. Those are parts that live within me, but that's not me. Yeah, it's very interesting and surprising. I think for me, a lot of those experiences have come during therapy where I'll be in the therapist's office and she'll ask me some question or I'll be explaining something and she'll say something like, oh, that sounds like a part. And then like for the first time ever, I'll realize that this part of me that was explaining something to her or was upset about something like wasn't me. And I was able to like kind of look at it. And mm -hmm. when you realize that something's not you, it becomes less important to solve whatever problem it's trying to solve. I see. It's I the see. same. It's the same thing. Like, um, you know, if you're driving your car and someone cuts you off mm -hmm. and you could describe it in a couple of ways, either you get angry or anger is present. If you're angry, well, then you have a problem. You need to figure out what to do with your anger. Maybe you need to catch up with this guy and yell at him or something like that. But if it's not yours, if it's not your anger, then maybe you don't need to do anything about it. You know, mm -hmm. so there's something special happens if you can see that some of the things that occur in your mind, either you're not responsible for them or um or they they sort of exist separate from you yeah 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 so josh can i ask a sassy question i'm going to be a little bit sassy you have read a lot about different types of therapy and as you were talking my my rigid mind was thinking in terms of act right? <laughs> of course my mind is going to do that but i also was thinking about other models of therapy for example, within a schema therapy, you identify the schemas or core beliefs you have about yourself. I am unlovable, I'm worthy, I'm an angry person. And then you see how you respond to those schemas, those stories, and then that, that work is to change your responses. Um, with narrative therapy, the intervention is called externalization of the story. And you give a name to that story, but you are looking at the story as something that you have, not as something that defines you. Then within ACT, the work is learned to hold those stories lightly and take action based on our values. So these different therapy models have some form of learning to hold all these repetitive patterns or repetitive messages about who we are within ourselves without being defined by them. What's unique for you about internal family system that is taking you into this new journey that you find very revitalizing, perhaps, given that other models may be doing something along the lines or similar? 
But what has been that the click for you with IFS? And I don't mean to put you in the spot, but I'm curious here. Yeah, no, put me on the spot. That's fine. I love being on the spot. <laughs> I think the big difference is just IFS shows you how to do it. Like those other models, they tell you what's going on. And I think they're right. They tell you about the stories you have and the different perspectives. But IFS tells you actually how to go in and, you know, find the distance, find the space, how to, you know, recognize the separation where you begin and where you end. Like, I think in a lot of things, especially in like mindfulness and other modalities, they do a good job of describing how to do stuff but maybe or describe what needs doing, but not always how to do it. And I'm so my day job, I'm a software developer. So I have to work with a lot of algorithms. And when you write an algorithm for a computer, you have to tell the computer every single thing from the beginning to the end. So like, if you want to teach someone how to open a door, you have to like step your feet close enough to the door so that your hand can reach the doorknob. Then you need to like rotate your wrist to the left to turn the doorknob, and then you need to pull your elbow towards your body so that the door will open, and then you need to move your body. Anyways, it's like a recipe for how to do something. Like, unless these paradigms provide you with like step-by-step directions in, in, in order to like accomplish these goals, I feel like, you know, they're missing something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're tapping into something important. I think that sometimes in therapy, um, there is a lot of cool ideas, but at the end of the session, the question is, what do I do with that? When I close this door, how do I put that into action? So it looks like in your experience, IFS gave you that, this practicality of holding these different parts. Yeah, yeah. With IFS, I know that if I'm having a hard time, I can close my eyes and I can try to figure out who's upset what they're upset about, what do they need, you know, but I can't do it alone, right? I need a mindfulness practice or like a yoga practice just to settle my nervous system down enough to even begin to do this kind of work, you know, or I need to like call a friend and settle myself down some more before I can, you know, go in to this world and figure out what the problem is. I have one last question for you. Um, if you were to have a cup of tea or coffee with any person you want today, who will that be and why? Just for curiosity. Yeah, my yeah, my dad passed away this year. And uh, I think the, the answer to that question will always be the same for me, at least for the next five or 10 years, which is just to have a, you know, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with him. You know, he was a good parent and I had a lot of love and uh, admiration for him. So, yeah, it's quite easy for me to answer that question. I'm sorry he passed away. I can see how much he went into your life. Josh, thank you so much for chatting with me. We're running out of time, but I want to say that I'm a big admirer of what you have been doing, your podcast and your passion for therapy and well-being and mental health. So positive of appreciation for all what you're doing. And thank you so much again for chatting with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Normally, I'm asking the questions, so it's a nice, uh, it's a nice mixture. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you are feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Show notes of this episode are in the website playingwithsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon.